In the Know with Bernstein Research. Welcome to In the Know with Bernstein Research. In this series, we discuss investment controversies together with what is top of mind and in the news with Bernstein's research analysts who are in the know. Our disclosures can be found at the end of this and every episode. I am Diana Wood from Bernstein's Boston office, and this episode features our senior European semiconductors analyst, Sarah Russo, based in London. As an industry veteran having joined us from ARM, Sarah will walk us through some of the basics of semiconductors. She will then talk about the next big area of growth for European semis and double-click into automotive semis. She will also discuss the opportunities within artificial intelligence on the edge and what the future application could look like. So with that, Sarah, welcome. We're so happy to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Diana. So I'm especially thrilled to have you with us today because you're sort of a classic example of an amazing Bernstein analyst. And considering the industry that you joined us from and your previous background, there's no better person to be asking the questions I'm going to today. So prior to joining us, you were at ARM, one of the leading players and innovators in the semiconductor space. You know, semiconductors have been called the brains of modern technology. But in your words, what is the simple definition of a semiconductor? Yeah, a, a simple definition is is hard to explain, but I'll do my best. <laughs> so we talk about semiconductors. We're talking about in common circle. It's it's an integrated circuit or a microchip or just a chip. And the thing is, these are made from pure elements like silicon or germanium or compounds that act like those particular elements. And so let me explain what I mean by that. The feature that we're exploiting about that material is that that material can shift between conducting electricity, so acting like a metal like copper, and not conducting electricity, so acting like glass or rubber. And depending on the current or voltage applied to them, they can conduct or not conduct, therefore they are semiconductive. So the specific properties of a semiconductor material depend on what impurities we add to it. And that's why we we make the chips, this the, the integrated circuits, out of semiconductor material. And that's why it, 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 we just now refer to them as semiconductors. But let's get into a little bit more of, of how you define, like, what is a chip? What is it actually made up of? So it's really a set of tiny electronic circuits that have been printed onto a small flat piece of silicon or whatever it is the semiconductor material we're talking about. So these printed transistors act as many electrical switches on that chip and they can turn on and off and turn the current on and off. And when a chip is created, we create a pattern of of tiny switches on that silicon wafer by adding and removing materials to form a multi-layered latticework of interconnected shapes. And the result of that is really a whole pattern of switches. The most advanced semiconductors today have very, very tiny transistors or switches that are measured on the scale of nanometers. And companies are now manufacturing chips that have transistors measured in single digits of nanometers in length. So just some fun facts to give you a sense of of, of what that means. A single gold atom is about a third of a nanometer. Or another comparison, a human hair is 100 microns, and a nanometer is 100,000 times smaller than that. So we're talking about very, very tiny switches when we talk about semiconductors. Wow. And anyway, thinking historically, who invented the semiconductor? How did this come about? Yeah. And, and again, I think we, we talk about those two different angles, you know, the semiconductor materials, the discovering that they are semiconductive. You, the start of that discovery and understanding goes back to the 1800s. 
But assuming we're talking about the chips, who came up with the way to make these chips? The very first working transistor, so that switch, and they, they were operating on scales that you could see very easily at that point, was a group of researchers at Bell Labs. Their names were Bardeen, Bretagne, and Shockley, and that was 1947, so quite a long time ago, post-World War II. They won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1956 for the invention of the transistor. So that's the little switch. But you know, we talked about how there's thousands of those transistors in a modern semiconductor. So about 10 years after they invented the idea of the transistor, a guy named Jack Kilby was working at Texas Instruments and was able to successfully demonstrate a working example of what we call an integrated circuit. So a set of printed transistors all on one piece of silicon. And that's the precursor to what we think about as a chip. And six months later, another guy, Robert Noyce, he was at Fairchild Semiconductor, came up with um, an integrated circuit chip design that improved the process to make it more scalable. So a lot of people will talk about Noyce and, and Kilby as the ones who came up with the modern idea of a semiconductor. Again, some, some interesting, you know, NASA's Apollo program was the largest user of these integrated circuits between 1961 and 1965. Wow. Um, about 10 years after those integrated circuits, that concept was developed, was when TI came out with their first, what they called a desktop calculator that used the integrated circuit. And that's sort of the precursor to the idea of what we think of computers and the way we think about compute today. Yes. Which leads me into the next question, which is what makes a semiconductor so important? You just described NASA and computers and what makes them so important? When I think about semiconductors today, they're just the way we operate in daily life today for the most part. So they're part of the woodwork. You think about the wake up in the morning analogy and where do you interact with semiconductors? Probably millions of them before you get to work. So things like, you know, your alarm, when that goes off, doesn't matter what kind of alarm you're using. If it's an old school flashing red digital numbers, that will have semiconductors. Your phone, obviously, or your watch will as well. You turn on the lights, most light bulbs will have semiconductors, modern light bulbs, your electric toothbrush, your coffee maker, your kettle, anything that lights up will have a semiconductor in it, your refrigerator. Then you think about how are you going to get to work, whether that's your car, we'll talk much more about semiconductors in cars later on, the traffic lights you encounter on your drive. If you take a train, all of those information boards and the gates you go through, the credit card you use to buy your ticket if you have a chip or pay for your fuel for your car. And then you know you get to work and just about everyone uses semiconductors to do their work. And I'm not just talking about knowledge workers that are using laptops or other technology devices, but if you're building something, your power tools will have semiconductors. And if you're transporting something, just about any type of vehicle will have semiconductors. If you need to pay for something as part of what you do for work, any card with a chip in your wallet, they're just about everywhere we live today. So when you talk about they are the foundation on which most of what we do is based on today. So I I remember a little bit about this from when I was young and first learning about, you know, semiconductors and power, but there are different types, obviously, and we don't need to list a million of them. But what is the difference between an analog semi and a digital semi? There's sort of four broad categories, and then there's sort of analog and digital. So just to give you a sense of how to think about categorizing them, there's what we've talked about. There's the integrated circuits, which is that lots of transistors and you sort of those operate as brains and you can do calculations and things like that. But you also have 
optoelectronics. So that's anything that can emit or receive light or some combination of the two. You have discrete semiconductors where they're either on or off, like diodes and transistors. Sensors, so things like thermal or pressure or acceleration or light, anything that senses any of those things. But when you want to talk about digital or analog, you can think of analog integrated circuits as those that interface with the real world. They take the signal that's either temperature or speed or sound or electrical current, and they convert that into information. So they convert that into a a digital signal that can be interpreted, that information used, that information, you know, handed over to a digital chip so you can do something with that information. Think of the analog ones as those that interface with real world functions. They transition things in the real world into the digital single. Okay. That's really helpful. But speaking of the real world, and you just gave some great sort of examples of semiconductors in daily life from the moment we wake up until we're sort of ready to head out for the day. But you've also written extensively on the role of semiconductors in automotives and how this is the next big area of growth. So can you expand on that a bit? Let's just kind of click into the automotive side of things. Yeah. So what's interesting about semiconductors in cars is we've we've had them in our cars for a very long time. I mean, you can you think about all the things I've been describing and the time periods in which semiconductors developed. You can imagine pretty quickly we we started to get those types of, of devices in our cars to help us operate them. But we're sort of reaching peak car. You know, we're, we're not seeing a huge growth in the numbers of cars that are being driven. And normally when we look for, for growing markets, you think about where, where volumes are growing. Cars really aren't doing that. The, the expectation for next year is that we're going to see sort of flat car volumes for next year. The reason we're seeing growth in automotive semiconductors in particular is there's just a significant increase in the amount of semiconductors, number and value of semiconductors in your car that is happening right now. So on average in 2021, there were somewhere between six and $700 worth of semiconductors in your car. Obviously, bigger cars will have more semiconductors, smaller cars, less semiconductors on average, but on average, about 600. And that's expected to double by 2026. We'll have about $1,200 worth of semiconductors and be upwards of $1,500 by the end of the decade. So we're seeing a huge growth in content. Part of that, there is a volume aspect to this, and that is the growth in electric vehicles. So electric vehicles are you know, it's estimated there maybe 10, 15% of the cars sold today. And that's expected to, to reach the 50% mark by sort of later in the decade, even crossing towards 60%. Now, when you look at an electric vehicle, the semiconductor content is almost twice that of an internal combustion engine vehicle when you compare a battery electric vehicle to an internal combustion engine. You have these really big semiconductors, the power semiconductors makes up the cost of that makes up about 70% of that increase in, in value of semiconductors. So that the electrification trend that we're going through right now, and you're seeing huge growth in China, Europe is also growing very strongly, and, and the US is starting to, to get there. That growth in electric vehicles is, is part of what's causing the growth in content and the increase in, in average content per vehicle. 
And you did a great job in your initiation. Um, I wish folks had it in front of them, but sort of dividing the growth trends into three categories, digitization, electrification, and then autonomous. So I know you've sort of touched on these, but within the autonomous trend, that's obviously a big focus as well. Absolutely. So we've touched a little bit on electrification and, and that is, you know, if we expect half the vehicles to be electric vehicles by the later in the decade, that's a significant growth because you double the semiconductor content in those. The other one, uh, you know, I'll go to digitalization. So the idea that we're eventually going to have centralized vehicle architectures. So we're moving towards a world where rather than just having semiconductors around our cars and lots of little independent systems scattered around our cars, maybe one that's handling your heating and another that's handling the way the windows and door locks work, we're rethinking the way we handle the electronic architecture of a car because the wiring to support all of these features is really heavy. And the compute that we're putting in these cars, if you're sort of moving it into all these pockets and handling all these different systems separately, you can be much more efficient with that if you do something like put in a high-performance compute semiconductor that acts more as the brain of the car, and you think of the design of all of the systems of a car as a whole, more like you would design a laptop or a computer, and you think of your, your car as just a very fancy version of a laptop or a computer that, that you've designed the entire thing to optimize where those semiconductors are in the car. So this idea of centralizing vehicle architecture is driving some of that growth in automotive semiconductors. The last category of semiconductors is autonomous features or advanced driver assistance features. So we're not talking about everyone's driving around in autonomous vehicles in a few years' time, but we are seeing an increase in advanced driver assistance features, so ADAS features. This is things like early days was things like anti-lock braking systems, so that when you would put your foot down on the brake really hard, rather than you needing to pump the brakes to make sure you didn't skid, it would do that for you. It just made it much safer to drive. But we're getting more and more of those features. And we're, we think of autonomous features on five different levels. The first two are sort of the feature is helping you. It's assisting you. And then in level three, level four, you get into things where you, the system is doing it and taking those actions and you only interact with it and interfere when, when you need to for that safety versus five, which is fully autonomous. The system is doing everything. The, the semiconductors have that. So the expectation is that the ADAS features that are being introduced to your car, the things like lane keeping, when you're on the highway, you turn that on, you, don't, you have your hands on the steering wheel, but you don't have to do anything. Those types of features are going to increasingly penetrate our cars and start to go into lower and lower end vehicles and safety features, all of those things. So that is a really big category of growth for automotive semiconductors, that you're just getting growth beyond having more cars on the road. Well, historically, there's always been a stable auto semis value chain, but that is facing a number of disruptive trends right now. And it's sort of a game of musical chairs. What are those trends that you're seeing? Yeah, and that, that goes back a little bit to the fact that we're rethinking how we design the electronic and electric architecture of our cars. So the way that the, the supply chain works really broadly for a car is you have the auto OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers, so your big auto companies. First round of level suppliers, they're called the tier one suppliers. They tend to bring fully complete 
components to those cars. And in the past, the semiconductor companies would supply to the tier ones. The tier ones would assemble the systems that then get installed into the cars. So if you look from bottom to top, you have the foundries manufacturing the chips that are designed by the semiconductor companies. You then they supply those to the tier one suppliers who then supply those to the OEMs, the automotive OEMs. But what's happened is because we want to optimize these systems and get as much weight out of these cars as possible. I mean, if you're driving an electric vehicle and and you have to power this with a battery and a semiconductor, having extra weight to haul around is not ideal. So they're rethinking the way that they design these things. And, And therefore, the automotive OEMs are increasingly working more collaboratively with tier ones, not just saying, I need a component that does this. They'll say, this is the outcome I'm trying to achieve. How do we optimize? How much weight can you take out? And increasingly, even the semiconductor companies are winning deals directly with the OEMs. The importance of those big power semiconductors for an electric vehicle means a lot of the OEMs are working directly with semiconductor companies to ensure they're getting the most out of those semiconductors that the that semiconductor companies are designing. With that change in the way they interact with each other, there's more collaboration going on. There is a, a change in the dynamic of, of how they talk to each other. And rather just saying, I need a semiconductor that meets X, Y, Z specs, they collaboratively work out how to optimize this. The other big thing that's causing change to, to the automotive industry is if we remember back to the pandemic, one of the big things we saw is at the start of the pandemic, the automakers put production on hold. They didn't think people were going to be buying cars. We sort of way slowed down production of cars. They said, we don't need any semiconductors right now. Well, the way that they they had been working is this just-in-time supply. So semiconductors were coming into the auto OEMs just in time for manufacturing, which means that there's sort of not a lot of room for error. And when the semiconductor companies were told to, we don't need any chips right now, they said, okay, we'll, we'll put that on hold. And they slowed down production. And they, and they can't just turn that back on and the supply chain just suddenly fills back up again. So it's taken about three years. We're just starting to see supply chains normalize to go from the IDMs and the, the semiconductor manufacturers to the distributors, to the tier ones, to the OEMs. And some places we still aren't quite back to normal. That's also meant a lot of change in dynamics of, of the way that the semiconductor companies engage with the OEMs. We even have, have some instances where automotive companies are asking semiconductor companies to hold higher level of inventory and share the cost of that with them because they see that in their best interest. So it's really changed the dynamics of, of how inventory levels work, how they manage this across the supply chain in automotive I feel like that time in our world, the pandemic, so much in terms of the supply chains, it just gave a whole new meaning to sort of risk management and how you think about supply chain management. But the the major players, of course, are in Taiwan and Korea, within Asia, in addition to the United States and others. But of late or in the last couple of years and several years, China has very much been pushing to the forefront. What do you think of their China's efforts to sort of build out their own domestic auto semis capacity? Yeah, it's a, it's a very timely question. We see a lot of evidence that that is happening. I mean, we cover a couple of the the semiconductor equipment companies, and one of the things we've seen over the past six, nine, twelve months 
is yes, we have the restrictions coming into place that China is not allowed to buy the advanced manufacturing equipment. But since all of those regulations have come into play, China seems to have really focused in and are are buying up a lot of what we call mid-critical and mature node manufacturing equipment. So a lot of our semiconductor equipment players are seeing a really strong demand from China for for these types of manufacturing equipment. One of the places where you get these sorts of semiconductors, power semiconductors and, and other semiconductors that don't require leading edge, you know, the, the, the transistors on the nanometer scale, these are much bigger than that. Automotive is a place where those semiconductors, those power semiconductors are really useful. China also has a very strong push into electric vehicles. So it's estimated that something like 5% in 2022 of of China's automotive semiconductors for their domestic auto production was actually produced in China. So they're starting from a very low base. But the expectation is that's going to reach closer to 18, even 20 percent by the end of the decade. So they're pushing very hard. I mean, it's going to it's a slow process to build out a semiconductor industry. Anybody who's paid attention to some of the the desires of Europe and the US to get into semiconductor manufacturing know that this takes years, even a decade or more to establish. China is trying to do that in the space that they're allowed to buy the equipment. And it looks like automotive semis are a great place for them to go because they can get the equipment. They have a really big push for electric vehicles. So we see increasing focus on that and even specialized materials that go into electric vehicles. There's material called silicon carbide that happens to be really good for those big inverters and and power semis that go into electric vehicles. China is pushing very hard to upskill in that and to enter into that market because it fits very well with where they're trying to grow. Well, it's certainly a topic du jour. I feel like we've covered a couple of them thus far, electric vehicles. China. We're not going to talk about GLP-1s unless it's going to tell us we're buying less, fewer can openers. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> you, you mean, yeah, you, you talk about where they, they go into your refrigerator and things like that, but that might be the only connection to that. <laughs> I know. So the other one is artificial intelligence, AI, and you've joined us from ARM. Can you just talk about your experience? Can you talk about what you mean by artificial intelligence on the edge and what the opportunities are? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really interesting topic. So ARM considers anything that does compute as their target market. So compute that underpins AI applications is squarely in their sights. Like they they see it as But let's let's start with a little bit of a history of ARM in case people aren't as familiar with it. So Brief history of ARM, it was a joint venture between a a British computer company called Acorn and Apple back in the, the, the late 80s, early 90s. And Acorn wanted to get into the personal computer market. They were reasonably successful in the educational market in the UK. They developed a new architecture to underpin their computers. And it was a risk based architecture. It was a reduced instruction set compute. Turns out the rest of the world went with complex instruction set compute, more flexible, but tends to be more power consumptive. But Acorn was sort of never able to really break out of the UK market and go beyond where they were. They weren't quite, but they had this really cool architecture they wanted to do something with. Apple was exploring 
what they might be able to do in sort of smaller devices at that point. So they were interested in this architecture. They said, hey, let's let's do a joint venture. We'll call it advanced risk machines, risk as in reduced instruction set compute. So they came up with this joint venture called ARM, ARM, and Apple ended up using the ARM architecture for their very first small consumer device called the Apple Newton. It was an early PDA, personal digital assistant. It was not hugely successful for various reasons around the interface, but ARM was able to deliver compute power that was battery operated, reasonably efficient and reasonably powerful. It enables them to support this PDA. They went on to to support the development of the Apple iPod, the Nintendo DS, early mobile, the very first smartphones, then tablets, and and they're approaching about 300 billion chips shipped. So they're really good at low power compute at the edge, but high performance. That's a little bit of history arm. So they, they are really good, what we call at the edge, something that doesn't sit close to a bunch of servers in a data center, but sits out in the world somewhere. So, you know, I, listening to Stacy's podcast that he did with you, you know, he, he talked a little bit about training versus inference. So I won't go too far into that. I highly recommend Stacy's podcast. The training is, is today done in data centers and it's NVIDIA's sweet spot with GPUs, these graphical processing units that do this parallel processing. You can use it for training your AI models. But inference eventually needs to happen where you want it to happen. It needs to happen in the place where your information is. So you can put your model out at the edge potentially. And in those end devices, that is ARM's world. That is where ARM is already dominant. They have something like 99% share in mobile phone application processors. So that inference run in the data center in the mid 2010s was sort of the first point where compute was able to perform as well or better than humans at identifying the cats and the dogs and the pictures. But you know, now less than 10 years later, ARM is actually doing this on our phones. So if you look at your your if you have an iPhone and you look at your photos, you'll see things like it suggests an album called Pet Friends or it, it Beach Days. The AI on your phone is figuring out what those pictures are pictures of and categorizing them. And it's doing this on your phone. Apple actually publishes a a really nice page that explains how it does it and why it's on your phone, not off somewhere that your data is going somewhere. It's doing it on your phone. And that's, you know, that's enabled by AI type features on your phone. You know, another thing that AI at the edge, audio processing, it can handle cleaning up that audio, making sure it's clear that the signal is clear. You know, these are the kinds of things that... AI at the edge can support. Wow. I have to say, I don't even know what my memory storage is. Every time I get a new phone, I have to just bump up the memory. I have 61,000 pictures. I take so many pictures of my kids and family things. There are a million. But I love the feature where when you want to search, it pre-populates who the person is that you're trying to search. I mean, it just, yes. It's amazing, isn't it? The, the the pattern matching and pattern recognition that AI is already enabling and the way it distinguishes between a beach day and and like if you're if you're climbing in the mountains, adventure days, it tells the difference between those. It's pretty incredible. Even like play, like it just gave me a video of like my kids like playing with blocks and this and that. It's like it acknowledges that activity, which is 
Anyway, okay, so fascinating. I love all of this. So if we look sort of three, five, even 10 years in the future, the amount of research and work that you do on this, what have you heard? Like, what are the things that sound too hard today that you actually foresee being achievable? It's really hard. I mean, I some of these are sort of, they're based on things I've already seen, but they're pretty cool and you could see them going further. I mean, I one example that I think about is sort of an AI at the edge application is, is autonomous shopping. So I don't know if anybody's ever been to an Amazon Go store where you walk in with your phone and you scan in and there's no checkout. There's no, you just take things off the shelf and you walk out and it automatically bills you. So that's done by my understanding cameras all over the place and it understanding how to figure out what you've and if you take something, put it in your basket and you put it back, you won't be charged for it. It first appeared in, I believe it was Seattle around 2018. So it's not new. But those sorts of applications that, you know, it's not everywhere yet, obviously, and it's not many places yet. But you would, ex- you know, as we get better compute at the edge, those things become easier because it comes less expensive. It's it's a lot easier to implement. It was sort of an experiment back then. Other areas where you have tons of data, but we, we can't sort of do anything with it just yet, and we're clearly not good at doing it, is weather. I mean, we got lots of weather data, but predicting that and giving people real-time information where they are in a way that is useful for them, it's still hard. I mean, I, I live in Cambridge in the UK. We cycle a lot. And I remember when I was working in Cambridge, I would cycle home from work. I'd check the weather and try to understand, is it going to rain in the next 20 minutes? I could try, but it still isn't particularly good. But things like that, you could see if, if we get better data and better models about how to understand that and what happens, it could be good. Traffic is another one. We're getting better. I mean, you use some of these apps that give you real-time alerts and alert you automatically to route around things, but there's certainly improvements that could be made there. And then you think about, rather than things you pay for, things that may offer cost savings in manufacturing and logistics. If you have smarter things at the edge, facilitating the way items move around in a warehouse or or the way that manufacturing is done because it becomes cheaper and it's more intelligent where those things are in the process. You could potentially see applications emerge there. But also, you know, there, there still is AI acceleration in the data center. There's still, you know, the, the networks are getting better, the interaction between your data center and your things at the edge. It's still not worked out exactly where the compute needs to be and what those applications are. And I think that's a lot of what we need to understand before we start really picking the winners for AI and AI at the edge. Okay. I love it. Well, as someone who experiences New England weather on the daily, I'm very, yeah. I'm a very strong supporter of the weather component. <laughs> I feel like we should set a date for a year in the future, although I will obviously talk to you many times before to do this podcast again and see what has developed, what progress we've made on all of these different opportunities. But weather is certainly on my wish list yes. and so is traffic. So <laughs> I agree. Uh, this has been wonderful, Sarah. Thank you so much for your time and for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Diana. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. You've been listening to In the Know with Bernstein Research. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to like or subscribe. In the Know with Bernstein Research. 
If you do not have access to Bernstein's research, you can find it at bernsteinresearch.com, where you can also find important disclosures that we encourage you to review. Bernstein has no obligation to provide any updates or changes at any time in the future. All references and or market forecasts are correct at the date of recording. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenter and may not be the same as the views of Bernstein or its affiliates. Bernstein is not providing any financial, legal or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast and this should not be considered as investment advice. This podcast must not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. None of us hold positions in any of the equities that we have discussed today.